Hi, Em. Hi, Kate. Neville is really wanting your attention. I know. I know. Sorry for this distraction that no one else can see, but Neville, my sweet, sweet pup, has decided that he wants to be part of this podcast recording and is biting my hand. Come up on the couch, Nev. Today's release is our Justified Creatives reunion, which was presented by FX and is another one of our special releases. I know we've talked about this when we did Parent... Are we, we have we done Parenthood? Parenthood is next week. Parenthood's next week. Great. Well, and the guys, it's been since June. There's a lot of things that have come out. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Parenthood and Justified, we've talked about. Um, we have had at the festival when they were currently on TV, like when they were still being made Yep, in real time. And these were our first reunions of shows that we had also gotten to host at the festival when they were current. And I just think that's cool that we have been around long enough <laughs> that we can reunite shows that we also knew from a prior life. I don't know if that makes sense. No, but it is fun. I mean, I feel like as we've even done the endings of shows, which as we've grown, we've been able to do endings of shows in bigger ways, mm-hmm. thinking of like the Americans mm-hmm. whole cast, but it would be great in I can't remember when it ended, but five plus years after the end date to then do an Americans reunion. Yeah. So it's fun that we can now do shows, send shows off in beautiful ways, but then also at that moment, start counting down yep. the reunion time. Yep. And this was a great one for us to do. This was a great one. And just so everyone knows, if you don't already know, the festival is a third past, a third current, and a third premiere TV. And the past bit can be reunions canceled too soon never picked up pilots but then within that the reunions can also be like cast creator directors which is like what scrubs and parenthood were or it can be writers rooms and creatives and so justified is with our dear friend and advisory board member and creator of justified graham yost but then it's basically his writers room and directors and producers and things like that and it's they're always really they may not be as flashy as seeing tim oliphant and walton goggins on the stage but they have better stories no offense well it's so fun to hear these groups come together and we've done different versions of writers reunions and i feel like the first big one we did was dawson's creek the fun part about dawson's creek talk about being flashy versus not flashy is the Dawson's Creek writers room reunion was also the very first thing we ever did in the Paramount theater, which seats. sat on a technicality because we were doing Gilmore girls. Yep, that we night. did Gilmore girls that <laughs> night, but it was the first time it was the first year that we had the Paramount. So for those that haven't been to the festival, there's two historic theaters downtown. We use both of them. One seats 300 people and that's the state theater. And we've used that from the beginning And then the one next door, the gigantic one that seats 1,200, 600 down, 600 in the balcony, um, we didn't use until year four of the festival and Dawson's Creek, which did not fill 1,200 seats. But it was pretty full down there. But it was really full down there because people deeply love that show. And I mean, the writers from that show are amazing. Yeah. And that was the first, yeah, one that came together. But the big difference, I believe... I mean, there's many differences. They're very different shows. But one of the big ones between Dawson's Creek and Justified or even The Shield or some of those shows are the Dawson's Creek Writers Room Reunion. Most of those writers, because 
of the span of the show had not actually been in the writer's room together. It also was put together by Liz Tigler, who couldn't come because she was having a baby. I know. <laughs> but it was interesting because they they more talked about the life of the show and the different seasons and yeah. different periods and different writers had different stories to tell because they came on at different times where it feels like justified. They were all in it. And it was also... For most of it. And it was also like... Um, younger writers moving up or writers assistants becoming writers and like for example so like this whole group another fun fact about both justified and parenthood you'll probably hear us talk about this next week but is they were both scheduled for 2020 and they both wanted to wait and not do a virtual reunion and do it in person so in our return to being in person it was because they wanted to be together and this particular group, like, just loved and adored each other. And we loved and adored them, both Jen and I, because they were very easy to deal with um, and schedule. <laughs> and we don't, we like coordinated most of them, like, directly, not with managers or agents or publicists. And they were just like very into having a good time in Austin. So, like, but then if you look at like who these people are and who they were when they were on the show, so like Dave Andron was a writer on Justified and he had written on other shows but was still like just staff writer on Justified and now is running Snowfall on FX or like VJ Boyd also staff writer and then did Lincoln with Ariel Kevill and has gone on to do many other things um it's just like a lot of these writers were either writers assistants or staff writers, and they're now showrunners, which is very cool. It's a very powerhouse room, as we like it to say. It really is. And then it was moderated by Chris Ryan from The Ringer. It was his first year at the festival. He's like a super fan of Justified. So it was just like, it was a, it was one of the few panels, I probably like half of it, I sat in while it was, like I introed it and then sat and listened to it. And they are sarcastic and making fun of each other and telling like inside stories. And I just just adored them well and what's also really fun about this is now they're doing the are we going to call it a reboot what are we calling what the no new it's not is? a reboot extension of the universe okay great they're now doing that and so many of them yeah all are, of them no 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 many of um, them no, are in this new room some, so some are, of them <laughs> some of them and are currently working um, together yeah. again which we is are really fun. we're referencing justified city primeval which will be on fx um, fun fact, Justified is all on Hulu slash FX on Hulu if you want to rewatch it. But they've been making it um, for a while, and it is based on an Elmore Leonard book, and they're rebooting Raylan Givens, Timothy Oliphant's character, into the series. But it's, like, in Chicago. It's, like, kind of a different world. Um, but Dave Andron and Michael Dinner, yes, are co-show running it. Graham is attached to it, but he has a deal somewhere else, so he's more godfathering it. Sarah Timberman, who is not on this panel, is producing it. Um, and I think they all have, like, a little bit of, like, references to it. But Andron and Dinner are sort of, like, the the crux of it. The thing that I really like about this panel, many things, because they all get along so well and love each other, which is always fun. Um, but they do talk about the fact of justified – the time and place that Justified was written and came out is a different, even though it wasn't that many years ago, is a different time and place than we're in now. Yeah. And some of the things that they would do different that they are now getting the chance to do mm -hmm. in this new iteration. And I think that that's really cool that they're not shying away from things that happened in Justified that they're like, yeah, couldn't, couldn't do that now, nor should we, nor would we want to. And now we can 
how what is Raylan like in 2022 in a way that he was not in 2012 yeah the whole different conversation of whether or not you should judge that or not like when when do things yeah exist in a vacuum or time absolutely period or and I just think it's cool that they can talk about that and explore yeah. it in a new decade well I also think this was fun to have because I mean I watched Justified when it was on week to week and then I rewatched it in the pandemic but it was also a very popular pandemic rewatch so I think it's also good for the new iteration to have like all these new Justified fans who want to tune in yeah and know that it is being helmed by the same creative forces who are all assets and resources to one another in the making of the new show but I just had the most fun with them and you're all gonna very much enjoy this panel Justified the creative reunion presented by FX and moderated by I'm going to say it, our new friend, Chris Ryan. Bye. My name is Chris Ryan. I work with The Ringer, but uh, it's my honor to welcome the creative team behind one of my favorite shows of all time, Justified. We'll start with Graham Yost, the creator, showrunner, executive producer, and writer. Michael Dinner, the director, executive producer. Taylor Elmore, writer, producer. Dave Andron, writer, producer. Chris Provenzano, writer, producer. Benjamin Cavell, writer, producer. Ingrid Escajeda, writer-producer. BJ Boyd, writer-producer. Wendy Calhoun, writer-producer. These are the people who made Justified. How about that? Uh, everybody, thank you so much. It was just a pleasure to see you all interact and get this, this class reunion going. Uh, Graham, it must be special for you to see everybody under one roof again. Yeah, it is. <laughs> there is, you might have heard, there's a new chunk of Justified that's being shot right now in Chicago. And Michael Dinner and Dave Andron are the showrunners on that. And there was a, a room started back last, a year ago, March or so. Yeah. So some of these faces I would see on the Zoom. I, would, I was allowed, I'm in a new deal. I'm not really involved with the show that much unless it's really successful, in which case I'll say <laughs> you're welcome. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. You see people on Zoom all the time and then see them in person. It's like, oh, my God, that really is like the old days. Um, it's been really pretty pretty cool getting together. Yeah, Wendy, you were just saying to me outside that it, it, not all writers' rooms are also families like this and that it's kind of cool to be in the same room together again. It is. It is. It's beautiful to see everyone, and we've been talking a little bit about our families, so it kind of feels like they've grown up together, even though, you know, I haven't seen many, some people here in over a decade, although others I've seen uh, almost weekly. <laughs> But it's, it's really wonderful to have that spirit. And having been in a lot of rooms myself, I can honestly say this one's very special. You know, I have to say that uh, over the last couple of days, I wanted to, I'm not re-familiarized, but I was going to watch a couple of classic episodes. And then I just started the pilot. And then I just like lost like three days of work as I just let <laughs> Justify play in the background. Um, how often do you guys revisit the show? Uh, I'm curious whether or not it's like, I wrote it, it's done, it's out. Would you ever go back to ever catch it on TV or catch it coming up on Hulu and you just sort of let it play at all? I, I will say that my wife had not seen it. Um, and so in the last year and a half, because she was going to sit down and watch it, I sat down with her, right? And, and kind of in the same way that you did was like, well, I'll watch here and there and like I'll do other stuff. And I found myself sitting there watching it. Part of that is it's great to be getting older and not have such a great memory, and uh, there was so much that I'd forgotten. A few episodes I don't know if I'd even ever seen, frankly. Um, but it was fun to kind of to go back into it, and the timing was obviously good doing this, uh, this another round of it. And it holds up okay. 
you know, there's some things you wish had been better, and but a, a lot of it is pretty entertaining, and you you can be proud of it. Great. Let's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. When we uh, started the writers' room for this eight-episode limited series, uh, we were joined by uh, Walter Mosley, who joined us in the writers' room, and he was like the 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 crypt keeper. He would he knew, he remembered more than we. He said, "Remember in that episode in the third season, the fourth episode, when blah 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 blah." And Dave and I would look at each other and go. I, I don't know. <laughs> Well, Walter had been in the Snowfall Room since the start, and he had talked for four and a half years about how much he loved the show, and I thought he was bullshitting, but he, he wasn't. He really <laughs> does, and so it was fun to get him to come in and play on this. Four times? Yeah, he said he'd seen it four times. Wow. Graham, let's go back to the beginning. Um, as you're putting together the writer's room that's going to work on this show, what was the quality you were looking for in the writer? Was like a familiarity with Leonard important? Was it necessary? Was it sometimes not an advantage to have that? I, I think a familiarity with Leonard, uh, Elmer Leonard was helpful, but it was really, can someone be, um, there's a term we used to use, we're gonna use, we're gonna swear a little bit today, okay? Yeah. We might say gosh, and darn, and fuck. Anyway, um, <laughs> one, of, one of our go-to things in Justified was, it needs to be fucked up and funny. Um, and so I was always looking for that. And, when I, I wrote the pilot, I based it almost entirely on the short story, the novella, uh, Fire in the Hole. And I remember Elmore saying, oh, I really liked it. And I said, of course you did, Elmore. That's your story. I mean, it was like, I would be sitting there going, what, what's Raylan going to say next? Well, what did Elmore have him say next? Let's go with that. But then it was like, who's going to write on it? And the first call was to Fred Golan, who couldn't make this, this event today. Fred and I worked together back since... Boomtown, and we also worked together on a show, uh, a short-lived show on NBC called Rain, starring Jeff Goldblum. And so the next call was to people who worked on Reigns. And Dave Andron, you were on Past Life at the time? We don't have to talk about that. <laughs> Dave, Dave couldn't come over on staff, but he did two freelance that, that season. Taylor Elmore was, was on uh, Cold Case and couldn't join the staff or even do a freelance. We got him in the second season. And Wendy Calhoun was from, uh, from the days on Reigns. And when, we, when Reigns got canceled, I think yours was like going to be the next to go or something. No, it was Jennifer Cecil's, but yours was the right after that. So I knew Wendy was funny, and I knew that Taylor and, and Dave could do that odd sort of Elmore Leonard humor and, and Fred. And then it was looking for other writers, and... The whole thing started when Carl Beverly, Sarah Timmerman's partner, read the short story in a collection, said to Sony, we should do this, and they got Michael to sign on as a director. And then they were looking for a writer, and, and I came on, on board with that. But one of the writers that Carl and Sarah had found was this guy who had been a novelist and had written a, um, written a, a, a script about the mur first murder squad in Boston back in 1850 or something like that this guy named Ben Cavell, and I was like, wow, this is really good writing. Let's, let's bring him on board. And then we didn't get Ingrid until season three, and Ingrid had, I, I think we'd read, it was, we were, Fred and I were looking for other writers, and uh, Ingrid had written a script called Left of Boom about a bomb squad, and it had that same kind of thing, which is it's law enforcement, but it's kind of fucked up, mm -hmm. and it's funny. And so... That was always our thing for Elmore. And, and I will say one thing about the new iteration, uh, the scripts I've read, and is that the same ethos applies, which is, would Elmore like this? 
and he would. He would love it. So that was, that was always our goal. Um, and for the whole series, I would say the, the best review we ever got was that Elmore Leonard liked the show. Yeah. Um, for the folks that sort of started to come in season two, season three, you're writing as much for these, what are becoming iconic characters. You know, you, you, you have a familiarity with Justified at this point. Ingrid, you're coming in in season three, so they just finished the Margot Martindale season. What was that like kind of walking into a room where like, it's all kind of going in one direction already. You must have been a fan of the show by that point, yeah. I was a huge fan of the show. I had also, that was, Justified was my first drama. I started off in comedy, and it had taken about two years to make the switch. So I was in the headspace of, fuck it, if this doesn't work, I'm gonna go be a therapist or live in London. <laughs> so I brought that attitude into the room, and. Feeling like I sort of had nothing to lose, I think benefited me greatly. <laughs> because I was like, well, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And it did. And I mean, it, to me, I felt very quickly that this was a great fit. Like it was the same. I now constantly maintain that my, when I'm looking for new projects, that my mantra is fucked up and funny. And that's what came off of this. And it's just sort of, it's in my DNA now. And, and any projects without that, I just, I, I don't gravitate to. I've got to say, this gets in your blood. For the for the writers here, what, what was your relationship to El Elmore Leonard? Like VJ, I'll start with you. I mean, were you somebody who had sort of? Oh, just a second. Yeah, I didn't tell the VJ story. Oh, tell the VJ story. Oh my God, <laughs> the VJ story. VJ was our PA on the first season, and we like to say that we made him a writer because he was a terrible PA. And. <laughs> To which VJ says, I wasn't that bad, I was good. You got the lunches on time, shut up. Um, and then in the second season, FX had a diversity hire thing. And so we put uh, VJ in that slot. We'd read some of his stuff and we thought it was good. And uh, he didn't, he just sat and listened. And he, and he read a lot, read a lot of the Elmore stuff and just waited. And by season three, getting him a script and or co-written by, and then by the end of the show, VJ was really one of the senior writers as we sort of looked at this core team, a lot of these people here. Um, and that was, uh, you know, anyway, I'm sorry, I built it up, but that's the VJ story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew what joke you were going for there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, like I had honestly never read Elmore Leonard until yeah. I was an assistant on the show. Uh, but I, I, this is how I learned to write TV is uh, I learned from these guys. Um, and uh, and honestly, they've been a huge help to me going forward. You know, as I've been running shows and such. Also, like I still call Dave for advice and, and such. And so all these people were kind of mentors to me. So like it was. I think in a way it was even though I hadn't read Elmore, it was sort of an easy transition into it because I hadn't written anything for TV at all anyway. So it's like okay, I'm going to read all this Elmore Leonard stuff and and I'm going to write it like that. Uh, and you know, I, I think that I'm pretty good at that sort of fan fiction type of a thing, where it's already an existing thing, and I can write in that style. And I think that that's helped me in other jobs also. So, Ben, were you somebody who did you feel intimidated at all going on to a, a, a show where you were going to be writing an ad adaptation of the greatest crime writer maybe ever? Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure that I knew enough to feel intimidated because I really Justified was my first experience of television and I frankly, I mean, except for the pilot that Graham mentioned, the first script for television I wrote, Graham said, hey, this is 
great, go produce it now. So it, it essentially functioned as my film school. And I, I intimidated. I, I had loved Elmore forever. So that, that part of things, I actually felt like I had a pretty good handle. I mean, imitating Elmore Leonard, I, I suppose you never, uh, you never assume you'll be able to do, but knowing Elmore Leonard and sort of knowing his oeuvre, that I was comfortable with. But I, I, I don't know, I didn't, I, I also, I must say, I, I didn't appreciate how amazing the Justified Writer's Room was until I left it. It was my first experience of a writer's room and I was there from the beginning and stayed to the end. And, it, you know, I've been on a number of shows since and some very well-regarded ones, but no, nothing has ever sort of replicated uh, the the feeling of all of us. Not, not just because we love each other so much, but also because we really, we, we respect each other, but we also have a sort of, a, a creative symbiosis that is, I, I don't know, that I, maybe, maybe Graham knew he was putting together, but that I, I find, yeah, just a, an alchemy that is incredibly hard to replicate. Graham, it's kind of funny going back now to watch the older episodes. I think that there's like a conventional wisdom, or maybe it was, maybe it was my mistake, but you know, like some people feel like First season's a little bit more case of the week while the Boyd stuff's in the background, and then the second season is like the real godfather season where it's like more, you know, it's more of an overarching story. But I found that the balance in all the seasons between sometimes there are these singular storylines that get solved in a week or get wrapped up in that episode, but there's always this attention to an overarching story for the season to be maybe the most seamless, most brilliant execution of that. I certainly think so. That I've ever like no, but seriously, it is it is actually it's so amazing to watch. Can can you tell us a little bit about sort of the the chemistry behind coming up with the structure for these episodes and the structures for the seasons? Well, the, one of the secret partners in this whole thing, not at all secret, um, is just simply FX, and we pitched it to eight places, and we were fortunate enough that six were interested, and it really came down to FX and HBO. Um, HBO was one of my favorite pitching stories because I was pitching my heart out and it was like pitching to a wall. They were giving me nothing back. So I cut out all my jokes, all my shtick. We get out to the lobby and Sarah and Michael say, that's the best you've pitched it. It's like, well, fuck, I didn't do all my funny stuff. And by the time we got to the elevators, they'd made an offer. But um, we went with FX because Michael and Sarah had worked with John Landgraf on a show called Karen Sisko which was an attempt to do Elmore on network TV, and it was not a good fit. And we just knew that Landgraf and his team would be open to, and I just summed it up as, a four-minute scene between a couple of bad guys talking about chicken, in that you could just do those kind of Elmore things where you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know if two people were going to become best friends or if one of them was going to shoot the other one. And there was always that tension. So they were critically important to the whole thing. And one of the two things that John Landgraf said from the start was every episode has to have some kind of showdown. And, for example, it could be Raylan versus the two guys in the dentist episode, um, you know, out in the desert. It could be, um, but we also considered one in season two where it's Raylan and Loretta McCready played by Caitlin Deaver Yes, we got to be working with Caitlin Deaver when she was 12 years old. 
you know, it went from 12 to by the end of the show, she was driving herself to the set. But um, in the, there was one episode where Raylan's got to convince her to take a phone from him. That was the showdown. But every episode had to have some kind of showdown. And then the other thing was he said, the first part of the season, let them all be um, episodic. Let them be just individual stories. You can start your thread of the overarching story of the season. But we had another thing, which is we didn't have Walton Goggins. He was supposed to die in the pilot. Everyone said, that's a bad idea. <laughs> we agreed it was a bad idea. Um, and so he was so excited to come back. Graham, I, I, I'm so excited, it's great. Unfortunately, I'm doing Predators in Hawaii with, <laughs> you know, with Robert Rodriguez, I think he was doing that one, I forget. And so he wasn't available while we were shooting. We got him for a weekend here. We could have him in a hospital bed. We could do that. But we knew he could really re-enter the story in the final third of the season. So that sort of dictated a lot of how that season played. Um, and you'll notice that in subsequent seasons, let's say the first, in the second season, the first four, four episodes or so have some kind of standalone aspect to them. In the third season, it's maybe three. It just started to get smaller and smaller until by the end, they were all, it was fully serialized. And I think that was John planning for the life of the show, um, but also sort of seeing where television was going. That he sort of saw ahead that in four or five years, we can just do completely um, serialized storytelling. Taylor, where did the, some of those standalone adventures come from? Did, were they all, like, were, were you guys doing sort of extracurricular research on US Marshals cases, or where did some of those ideas come from? They came from a lot of, we, for one thing, we had a really great, a guy named Charlie Almanza, who's a U.S. Marshal, he was our, uh, you know, our on-set consultant, and the guy was just, he's the most unassuming, quietest, you know, and then he tells you these stories that just, like, holy shit, that happened? Like, okay, well, we gotta use that. So a lot of stuff came from Charlie, uh, a lot of stuff came from just, like, versions of our own screwed up pasts that we, like, turned into TV, you know, turned it into a little more uh, television-friendly stuff. But, you know, it, for, for me, like, the standalone stuff was really fun. I really, I really loved, because I had come from procedurals, I had done Reigns and Cold Case, and the notion, one of the great things Graham did for us on this show was breaking it out of a, anything, anytime things started to feel like, hey, so what time did the man come in, and, and the, the shot landed over here, and the trail goes that way, we were just like, don't do that. Don't, we don't want to see any, we were sort of almost like an anti-procedural, and that's what, that's what drew me in so hard was was that kind of that angle. Yeah, Chris. Often I r realize, like when watching Justified, it's like the the sort of villains just reveal themselves out of stupidity a lot of the times. Was it uh, fun to have such like a rogues gallery of these like rotating different like bad guys coming in and out? <clears throat> I mean, fun does not begin to describe <laughs> how enjoyable it was as a writer to have good solid, idiotic, deadly bad guys. Um, you know, Elmore's dictum was basically criminals are just assholes with guns. And we ran with that. I mean, we just, we knew early on we wanted to create bad guys who were just as colorful and interesting and unpredictable as the people who you were ostensibly there to watch, the heroes. And so once we sort of landed on, okay, this is a bad guy worthy of an episode of our show, we knew we sort of had an episode and we kind of could play with that. Um, personally, my favorite idiot bad guy was Dewey Crow, who I <laughs> loved 
I love to this day, I wish he were still with us so I could keep writing him in the spin-off series, Dewey Dunnett, or whatever it might be. Um, but yes, I mean, I've, I've long said to pretty much anyone who listen as a writer on this show, the gift, and, and Ingrid sort of touched on this, the gift is that you get to do anything. And you get to do everything you really would want to do as a writer. You get to do cops and robbers, which is fun. You get to do romance, straight drama, you get to do levity and, and comedy, and you know you get to just play with all the colors in the palette. And and no show that I've worked on has ever really had quite that combination. So it's not just the people involved; it's the way we approached it that's that that really makes this a standout. Well, and the bad guy stuff was so much fun to break and write because you really got to go do the most outlandish and then at some point after like two hours of being in stitches laughing at what these guys were going to do somebody would be like well what's Raylan doing and, <laughs> and we'd the be man like, in the hat oh, right shit we gotta <laughs> he's gotta it's really quiet we've got this whole thing we've gotta you have, like you have go. episodes where it's like oh no we left Raylan at the desk <laughs> like we would have like three episodes where it was like these bad guys are just out of their minds. This is gonna be great. And then it was like Raylan has to do something, doesn't he? <laughs> well, he's got to like get to him, but got not get all the way there. And it's got to be a fun scene. And in the meantime, and how do you? It was just like uh, yeah, that that strangely, as much as we, everybody loves Raylan, obviously, and he's the backbone of the show, we, we definitely could get caught up in the bad guy, the bad guy world a little bit. Michael, I wanted to ask you, you, you worked on Karen Sisko, you worked so much on Justified, it's, you know, there's, it's pretty rare, but it's always pretty incredible when someone, like, gets Elmore Leonard on screen as a director. Is there, are there any tricks to the trade that, that are shareable? Well, you know, it's, it, it, as, as it's been said, it, it starts with the writing, and, and, you know, for a director, doing this kind of material, for me, I mean, it's kind of in my sweet spot, uh, and, and what I love about Elmore stuff, we like to say that you don't see the joke coming, you don't see the violence coming. So it's very herky-jerky in terms of you're taking the audience by the neck, you know, and saying, pay attention to this and, and surprising them. So I don't know if there's any trick. I mean, I think on this show, what appealed to me was, uh, you know, tonally, I felt it was in my sweet spot, but I grew up in Colorado, and the first movies I saw as a kid were Disney movies, and the first adult movies I saw were Westerns. Mm -hmm. And People always thought I came from New York and was a neurotic from New York, you know. So if you'd said to me, well, "Do you want to do a postmodern Western?" I would go, "Are you kidding me?" And when um, when Carl and I, Carl Beverly and I, started talking about this material, the idea to kind of refocus what I grew up with was interesting to me because we were doing a postmodern noirish Western, and you'd walk just to the edge of the cl cliff in terms of the cliche and pull back, and it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, there's a there's a moment in the pilot of, uh, of Justified when he's going up against Dewey Crow, and Raylan says, uh, you know, says you don't knock without coming in, and 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 Dewey says, well, I'm gonna go outside, and then I'm coming coming back, <laughs> and so the the scene turns into like a you know a, a duel on outside this house, and Raylan's kind of framed as this heroic guy, camera's a little low, and and over it you see the house in the background, and this to me is what is the tone of Justified. He's sitting there, he's ready to draw, we think, and over his shoulder there's a satellite dish. So, I mean, I think that kind of sums it up. It was a postmodern kind of noirish western with a tremendous sense of humor. Yeah. That scene is the reason why I wanted to do the show. And when when uh, they sent me the short story and I got to that, it was like, well, most in most cop shows, the cop's gonna be yelling, get down, 
get, drop the gun, blah, blah, blah. And Raylan just stands there. Can you rack a load before I put a hole in you? And it's like, I want to write that guy. And then the other thing was uh, Dewey Crow, one of the great gifts we had on the show. But it was, it was Damon Harriman portraying him. Because Damon would take stuff that we wrote that we knew was hilarious. And it was funny. And it was making us laugh. And he would play it dead straight. Because that's what Dewey believed. And it made it even funnier. Yeah. And Patton Oswalt did that, too. We hired Patton Oswalt, one of the funniest people in the world. We created Constable Bob just for him, because we heard he was a fan of the show. And he comes in, and he doesn't do anything funny. He just believes in Constable Bob, and then he's hilarious. And so we, we were gifted with these incredible performers. And well, and you remember down. where Constable Bob came from, when Harlan yeah. was up. We had been... Yeah, we, so, yeah, so the Harlan trips, yeah. and the first Harlan trip goes back to Wendy, who had yep. a friend, and that's how we met Squirrel, wasn't it, Wendy? That's right. Yeah. got to hear about and Squirrel. You know you're doing a show yeah. set in Kentucky when we say, that's when we met Squirrel. <laughs> and Squirrel was the marshal? No. Yes, yeah, Squirrel was, he was the, the marshal in Kentucky. Lexington, I believe. Yeah, something. Anyway, <laughs> you said, oh, just call me Squirrel. <laughs> well, that's, that's where the idea of Mags first came from, by the way, as well. Just riding in the hollers of um, Harlan and hearing the stories of the real people and getting inspired. And we would go back, a group would go back every year, and that's where uh, Ingrid heard the story of, uh, you went five times? Five times. You went five. I love it, and I still, there are people I still talk to back there. Um, oh yeah, Constable Bob was because, I think Chris, Chris and I went, and I kept seeing this little dumpy car with a light bar on the top every now and then, and we were, we were doing a ride along with uh, Jeremy Lee, who was a state trooper, and I was like, what is that car? I've like I've seen it like ten times, and Jeremy just looks at me. He's like, "Oh, Ingrid," <laughs> he's like, "That would be Constable." What well, I think it wasn't Bob, but it was like, "Oh, I'd be Constable Hank." And he tells me all about this guy, and it was Constable Bob. Like it was, he would show up. He I guess in in Harlan they're uh, elected, and basically the reason why people want the job is because you get paid to serve papers essentially, but. Every now and then they would get someone who takes the job really seriously and who would show up on crime scenes and that same thing that he would show up at the bottom of the hill and the troopers are like, oh, for the love of God, man. And they're like, you got to stay down here. No, I'm just here to help. I'm just here to help. And that was how Constable Bob was, was born from hearing all these stories. And, and his, his belt buckle knife was the real... That was not... The that was not Constable that was Tony. Hank. That was Tony, our... Who did... I don't know. He was like our handler... Yes. No, 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 no. He. This was the guy in Harlan. Yeah. This is a guy. Yeah. He was one and of our handlers. He was handlers. showing us around, and he he was the guy who had the go bag in his trunk. Yep. And he was the guy who had a buckle knife, and who showed Ingrid and I. I was sitting. And in we the were like, seat. that's going in. <laughs> Back. <laughs> and he literally did the. I was like, oh, what's with that knife? And he said to me, pull on me. Pull on. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, pull on me. And I, so I was like, okay, and pretended to pull on him. And he pulled out his knife and went, <laughs> like he was gonna, I was like, I don't even know what, to, and I, yeah, we were like, this is going in. <laughs> so Elmore Leonard was not far off in his description of crazy bad guys, even though Tony was a good guy. Our second greatest review we got doing the life of the show was that people in Harlan got a kick out of it. They thought it was funny, and like everyone everywhere, it's like, well, that's not me, but that is that guy. I know that guy. <laughs> And uh, uh, it, was, it was so much fun to go there. And at the very end of the series, we took the final episode to Harlan and showed it to them in the gymnasium. 
of the school that Raylan would have gone to in Everts. But anyway. You know, one of the things I think that, that's really important is that there are all these great characters that we had, but the show was never condescending. You know, we never looked down on these characters. And we could be amused by, there was a, a lot of love for the biggest doofuses on the planet, you know. And I think that was really important to the storytelling and to, as you said, you know, people in Harlan love the show because we embrace them. You know, part of the theme of the show was if you were a carpetbagger who came into Kentucky, yeah. do so at your own, you know, beware. Dave, I was wondering, you know, there's this idea in sports where you're supposed to, like, design your offense to get the most out of playmakers. And then, I, but when you have the actors that you're all writing for on this show, how, how much did you notice yourselves writing for Walt, writing for Noel, writing for Tim, because they were showing you different shades of the characters than maybe you had thought about previously? Yeah, I mean, and look, the reality is we can take it so far and then they have to make it their own. And there's this wonderful kind of synergy that happens in the beginning, especially, right, is you're you're pretty sure what you're building for them on the page, but then they're going to take it and they're going to make it this whole other thing. And look, Dewey Crow is a great example, like finding Damon um, and finding somebody who could take that character as outlandish as he was and ground it. You're like, oh, well, we got to write more. You know, you got to write for Dewey Crow and you write to their strengths as best you think you know them. And the actors inevitably come back and they've got their thoughts and you hopefully incorporate those. And yeah, I mean, like Dewey Crow, Dewey Crow died on the page a few, a few times before he met his unfortunate end in the show. And it got kicked back to us by FX, I believe twice, where they were like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure that this is really where you want to take Dewey Crow out of your, you know, off the page for you guys? And they were absolutely right. Would have been a huge mistake. And he got, you know, he got the death, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, he got the death he deserved, and it really helped us in the show. I mean, it was the moment where you were like, oh, fuck Boyd Crowder. Yeah. Fuck that guy, you know? And it was important, and it was vital, and there's a really good lesson, I think, in that, in that as well. And, and, and that audience antipathy towards Boyd lasted a good 30, 40 seconds. Because <laughs> <laughs> people loved him so much, they're like, no, he shot Dewey Crow. Oh, Boyd. <laughs> VJ, I saw you kind of like point a little bit. Was there is was it e is it easier when you can do a little bit of a reset button on a character like Boyd because there is the, going to be the natural charisma of Goggins? Well, I, I think I was I was reacting to what Graham was saying because I think that a lot of us, it, it, me included, underestimated how much people loved Boyd and would forgive him for anything, you know. And and so uh, we, I think we tried in the final season to remind people that, well, this guy is a murderer, you know, and he kills people for no good reason sometimes, but then <laughs> he, he hasn't gotten his swastika tattoos removed for some reason, right? Uh, but it, it, at the end of the day, I remember being at the, the rap party for the final season, and I remember uh, one of the other actors, I can't remember, one of the guys who played uh, one of Boyd's uh, thugs came up to me and was like, yeah, I like how y'all tried to turn Boyd into a bad guy at the end. You know, I was like, he, in the first episode, he shot the dude for no reason, you know. Anyway. <laughs> um, I'm going to do something where I'm going to put you you all on the spot a little bit, and we can start with Wendy, but I was wondering whether you would mind mentioning a moment, and it can either be a moment that you wrote that you're particularly proud of, or a, a scene that you were a part of that you were particularly proud of, or one that you were particularly jealous of from the show. Yeah, um, 
in an episode I wrote in the second season, there is a moment where our marshals uh, are faced with not shooting a character of color, and that was before Trayvon Martin. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. And in that episode, fucked up and funny, we had this magician named Flex, played by Chadwick Boseman. And we were told by another secret sauce in this whole show, in the casting, it was Cammie Patton, who was our casting director. And she said, so Chadwick Boseman is about to explode into movies and do all this stuff, but he's free to play this part. I think you should get him. It's like, okay, Cammie, let's, let's get him. Um, the other Wendy moment that I have to talk about, because it was Elmore Leonard's favorite scene in the whole series, and it's a scene in the courthouse when uh, Ava has been abducted or she's under threat, and um, there's a scene between Ava and Winona. Yeah. And they sit down day. and they talk, so it fails the Bechdel test entirely because <laughs> they're talking about Raylan, but what he loved was that there was no animosity between them. They were just two people sitting having this conversation. And he said, I, man, I love that scene. That's so wonderful. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. One, one last thing that and I don't know if it's proud of, but just if I felt like was a leap off for me personally in my career was the opportunity to write such a badass and come up with ideas and share ideas with them about the character of Mags yeah. really led me to wanting to do Revenge, wanting to do Nashville, wanting to do like just as many badass female characters as I yeah. could dig into. I was spoiled rotten after that season and just couldn't get enough of that, so for sure. BJ, what about you? Well, I also want to say real quickly that it was Wendy's idea to have Win Duffy in an RV. I remember <laughs> that pitch in the room. Uh, but for me, my favorite moment, the favorite thing I wrote, carries not even an ounce of the weight of Wendy's. Uh, but I have to be honest that I, I was always, some of the fun of uh, uh, like writing for me is trying to put fun little in-jokes in like for people. And like being from Dallas, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big P1 at the ticket, which is a sports radio station there. And uh, I, so that line that Dewey Crow says, the anus is on you. Uh, that was an actual mistake someone made on the air on the ticket. <laughs> and so I, when I got a chance to write a scene in one of Chris's episodes, because we were in a hurry, I was like, this is, Dewey Crow is the only person on TV who could really say that. And it stuck, Chris kept it, and uh, I think it was, that was my favorite moment. <laughs> why, why can't we have Dewey do, do a college football podcast, man? Like, what are, we, what are we missing in this country? Ingrid, what about you? Uh, I can say the thing I was jealous of was coming on season three was not getting to work with Margot Martindale. Yes. And, but I did get to work with her on Sneaky Pete, actually, which was, I yeah. was so happy that I finally got to work with Margot, who I absolutely adored. Um, but I will say the fa my favorite moment that I wrote was Boyd uh, proposing to Ava. I flat out cried when I wrote that scene. And I remember Walton actually came up and he just, loved it and said it was one of his favorite moments in the series ever. And I think he also said he like framed the pages or something, which I, I don't necessarily think is true, <laughs> but he gushed about it and, and watching them uh, shoot that just was fantastic. And, and that's from the woman who was there the day that Jake Busey blew up yes. and covered Boyd in, 
and win oh, Duffy yes. in little bits of himself. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Ben, what about you? Uh, there are a lot. I mean, it's really a good show. But uh, <laughs> no, the thing that stands out, maybe because Ingrid just mentioned Margot, is the there's a scene between um, Margot and Caitlin, and I guess in in episode two of season two, and we didn't yet know just how good Caitlin was and was going to be. Obviously, we knew that Margot was a powerhouse, but it's this 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 scene in that episode where, you know, essentially. Margot is sort of de facto adopting her. I mean, she's murdered her father in the previous episode. We know that, but Loretta doesn't. And it's this sort of seduction scene of Margot walking her around, and you're worried that she's going to give her the apple pie, which she gave to her father, and that it's going to be poisoned. And I, the two of them are just so, so brilliant and sort of, uh, yeah, just so wonderful together in that scene it just crackles i remember being on set like this is this is just high level that's so cool chris what about you um a couple things i i so uh, i'll start with something i was jealous of so i think in the second season i we had as graham said and as we talked about we weren't quite fully serialized yet and we were still in some ways finding the show and i remember early on pitching the thing about uh watch coming from uh, Loretta's father and if we planted that maybe we could pay it off and it could be this thing and it would set into motion all this chaos and I remember feeling very kind of proprietary about when we pay it off and we could do this and we could do that and I didn't end up getting to write the episode and I was like oh man this was like this was such a juicy oh I really felt like this one and then Taylor wrote it and I I'm honestly I don't think I'd ever read anything quite as good and so much beyond what I could have done with the same material and I, it was one of those moments where I was like, Jesus, this is a good room. Like, <laughs> if we can take the raw material that we all feel an affinity for, proprietary, th there's that. The other thing I want to say is that I, this is not, I, I guess I'm proud of this, but I'm more grateful for this. Graham, throughout the run of the show, was more generous about the writing than any person I've ever worked for, really, or with. Uh, there were, I mean, innumerable... Um, instances where we would write a draft, we would get notes, and pretty much from then on, Graham would say, all right, you take it. You, you, deal, you deal, deal with it. You, you figure it all out. And so many things that I wrote, you know, being neurotic and a writer, I was like, I think it works, I don't know, would go on screen. And feeling like, wow, I, I, that was unmediated. It, it lives or dies with me behind it um, was a tremendous feeling. And there's many, many moments that went to camera, unadulterated. Uh, one that comes to mind that I'm, I'll wrap up being proud of is, I think it was late in the sixth season, there was a moment where we were again trying to make Boyd, trying to remind people like he's a rotten, rotten bastard. We, we have to root for him, you know, to pay the price. And Shea Wiggum came in to do a, a kind of an uncharacteristic scene for us. It was a pretty heavy scene where he sort of talks about, oh, okay, I know I'm gonna die, but I'm okay with that. I'm not frightened of you, Boyd. And he sort of was ready to meet the maker and all that stuff. And Shay, who I didn't know, who only came in for a day, came over to me. He's like, "This is this is heavy stuff, man. This is really this is good." And I was like, "Geez, thanks, guy who's not on the show, who doesn't need to be nice, you know." <laughs> so I was very proud of you know an actor who had really no stake in telling me that it was a, a great little scene, doing so. Dave, can I yeah. quickly jump in? 
because it's it's a it's a Chris it's a Chris thing, which is uh, final season. Um, we you know Arlo hadn't been on the show since season four. He died in season four, didn't he? Because he was hiding the secret of who really was Sheriff Usabiska, whatever the, whatever that was. Yeah. Uh, Troy Donahue, <laughs> Drew Thompson, B. J. Novak, D. B. <laughs> Sweeney, somebody like that. He was so um, we hadn't seen Arlo, and Chris didn't tell us. And he wrote a scene where Raylan sees Arlo's ghost and has a conversation with him. He just went for it, and I was so happy that he did. But I was also like, I'm so happy that we've got a room where that's okay, and you can try that shit. Because if 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 I didn't like it, I'd just put a line through it. I mean, you fired. Well, that's him. what I think. Right fire yeah. him. I was either going to be, you know, it's like, well, it was nice working yeah, with you. Yeah, but you got that like, close to the end. It was sad not to go all the way. I did fire him for just not clearing it with me, but it was like still a great You fired all of us multiple times, Graham. You fired us all multiple times over the season. And every time you all fired staff yeah, ever. Yeah. And yet we'd still show up. <laughs> Dave. Yeah, look, I guess selfishly, I'll just go back to the first episode I'd written of it because, as Graham said, I was on another show and I came into the room and <clears throat> Graham had given me my first job on Reigns years before and, and so I'd come in when that other show got canceled and they were already breaking the episode I ended up writing. So I was only in the room for a few days and I was kind of cramming and reading the scripts. I had I'd read the pilot because Graham had written it and I wanted to read it, you know, once before. Um, but then I kind of got handed an episode and I was still trying to figure out the tone of the show. And I guess they were a little bit too. And I didn't have a whole lot of time. and went off and, you know, you shut yourself away for four or five days or whatever and wrote it and you turn it in. And there's that moment when you turn it in where you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, is this, you know, does this work? Is this even the right thing? And getting that call um, from, from Graham, you know, from the guy who had given my first job where he said, it's unbelievable. Right. Now it wasn't. It was shit. But he was really sweet about being like, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, look, I have one note. Uh, there's only one L in Marshall. Um, <laughs> but other than that, but it, it was a pretty cool thing to be like, oh, okay, I get, I get this, I can do this. I, I, you know, I, did, him, I did him proud. Um, and then you know, over the next six years, I think the, the great joy was getting scripts from these guys without sitting up here. I know we're all having this self-congratulatory moment, but to get scripts from these, these writers and open them and just be like flipping pages and you just sit there and you're like, fuck. I wish I could do, I wish I was as good as these people. Um, and I, I always kind of secretly loved the way Taylor wrote the show. And, and I do think that episode, Brothers Keeper, in the second season, for me, is the high watermark of the show. So many things kind of converged and went right. And Taylor was absolutely the guy to, to write it. And it was really very cool to get to be a part of that and push yourself and, and try to be better to measure up. Taylor, you're just like, I agree. Jeez. <laughs> uh, no, that was, yeah, I was, I came in season two, uh, these guys had already, there was, there was such a rhythm to this room when I came in, and I was coming from a different kind of room, frankly, where, where the kind of rooms I were in were breaking the details of where this thing went vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, act one, and I came in this room, which was like anarchy, it was just like, let's do this, well, we go with a karate bob, and all these <laughs> characters are floating around, I was just like, okay. So I mean I tried I, I tried to swim as best I could and it was just it happened to be a really a really good environment uh, really buoyant water to swim in but the thing that I mostly remember my, was it was later in the show it was season four I think and it was Chris and Graham wrote a script that I can't remember the name of now but it was this this it was the coal train where they're trying to get out where they're trying to sneak um, uh, the sheriff out of the town it was very complicated to get there 
it was like episode it was 11 to 13 and these guys just wrote this swiss watch that just got tighter and tighter and tighter every time i read it and by the time i got cause what do we have who was who was playing i, I want it was it wasn't garrett dillahunt he was playing a bad guy uh, the one who said in when you cast me i would like to i would like gerard Depardieu to play me <laughs> was just great but that uh, that episode was was one of the ones that i just watched and went oh my god i am a part of something that is so much cooler than i even realized i could be a part of it was uh just a just a next level episode and that's one that i remember i watch again and again it's just a great episode michael what about you well there there are two things that that look i could talk about a lot of episodes or i could call walter mosley and he'd tell me what was great um but there are two things that i remember one one was the the final episode of this second season and talking about Caitlin and we had to pull that scene scene up early where uh, she has to put her gun down and she's uh, talked down by Raylan and we had to pull it up like a day or two early we didn't get to rehearse it she was a young actress and um, and she did it in a few takes and she had this monologue and I remember off camera was the great Margot Martindale and I would look at Margot and she would go and I would look back and go, <laughs> and I'd look at the camera operators who were in tears. So, and I remember at, somebody came up to us at the at the Emmys that year and said, uh, "How did you get that performance out of Caitlin?" And I said, "Well, for me, I just got out of the way. I mean, she was just brilliant." But the other thing I do want to talk about. I mean, we talk about how Boyd gave the you know and gave the series you know uh, its longevity, but but also I think the reason why this show worked, you know. I want to talk about you, which is in the in the first. There was a lot of Elmore in the in the first script, because we loved Elmore. But there was a lot of you in the first script, and there's a moment where Raylan breaks in to his ex-wife's house, and he tells a story about chasing down a guy to Nicaragua, and he says, "I never thought of myself as an angry man." And she says, "Well, Raylan, you're the angriest man I've ever met." And I think it was that setup of a character who's a flawed protagonist that drove this series for six years and now into this limited series that we're doing. And I think that it's, uh, you know, that's because of you. Thank you. And, th and that was a challenge from FX. And they said, we need something else at the end of the season. And uh, honestly, I can't like the best stuff we all know. I have no idea where it came from. But I just did think that if he's so cool and calm, maybe there's something else going on. And it did turn out to be our engine for the whole thing. And also just the simple question of, would I shoot an unarmed man? So we knew when we were getting into the final season, and by the way, we didn't, it was relative anarchy in that we didn't know exactly how it was gonna end up. We thought maybe this person would live, this person would die, all of that. And finally we came up, um, and this was you know a couple years after Elmore died, and it was like, oh right, Let's, let's end it the way he would have ended it, which is he didn't kill off a lot of bad guys unless they really were awful. And so, okay, so Boyd can live. Well, we're not gonna kill Raylan. We're not that kind of show, okay. And what about Ava? It's like, well, Elmore loves it when the woman gets away with the money and beats these guys, you know? I mean, that, that was part of his, his sweet spot. So we figured that out, but the big thing was that Raylan has a chance to shoot Boyd in the barn, and we built the whole season of Boyd doing one horrible thing after another. If anyone deserves to be shot at that time, it's Boyd, and he doesn't. 
But then we knew we had to have a showdown <laughs> because we're justified. So we had spent half the season building up uh, our character of Boone. Um, and we, you know, the casting gods. We got Mary Steenburgen. We got Sam Elliott. And uh, we got our dear friend. Why am I blanking on his name? Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan Tucker. Tucker. Um, who just, you know, just stepped into that thing and it was like, oh, we're safe. And so much of the time you're doing something like this, you don't know how it's going to go. Even when we cast Margot, she was great. And I remember Adam Arkin directed that first episode of the second season. And we were all down in the, the writer's room and the editing was upstairs. And he said, uh, Sarah, Fred, Graham, I want to show you something. And he took us upstairs and he showed us the poisoning scene. And there was that sense of, we've got a season. He also showed us the scene of, of Caitlin as Loretta outwitting the, the pervert, the, the pedophile in the, in the drying shed. It's like, wow, okay, because we thought if that actor doesn't work out, we'll, we'll have her disappear, run away, and appear at the very end and just do something. And it was like, no, we got to write to her. So, so many people, and, and I would say the, the, the reason the show worked is in the reason there are people here. Um, is because everyone was pulling in the same direction. John Harrington, our props man, built a working still for the big party at Mar Mag's. Now, it only made that much liquor, which, for the Justified writer staff, not nearly enough. You know, they were drinking moonshine out of a KFC bag uh, in Harlan when we went down there at the very end. That, classy. Um, and uh, that's it. Uh, fortunately, we have to wrap up there, but I just want to thank everybody for coming out today, and I want to thank this amazing group of people for making such a wonderful show. Thanks. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.